Isn't it interesting how so many claim Jesus for their side? So many people claim Jesus. I claim Jesus. If you're a Christian, you claim Jesus. Um, every church that says their church claims Jesus. There are all kinds of self-interest or uh, uh, special interest groups. They claim Jesus. There's a what would Jesus drive organization. Um, animal rights activists claim Jesus and what they're doing. Seems like everybody claims Jesus. All different kinds of movements. Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And everybody thinks Jesus is on their side. But what if, what if Jesus wasn't the silent type? What if Jesus wasn't the spiritual equivalent to a Build-A-Bear who we could make into whatever we wanted him to be, to serve whatever purpose we wanted him to serve? What if? Well, in reality, Jesus spoke and Jesus spoke with clarity. And Jesus spoke in a way that we could understand. And perhaps most unsettling, at least at first, Jesus spoke about what's right and what's wrong. And then, for sure most unsettling, at least at first, Jesus, amazingly enough, took aim at people who, in many ways, look a lot like us. People who look a lot like us. And, and that's unsettling. But he didn't do it because he was mean. He didn't do it because he was unkind. He did it actually for the opposite reason. He did it because he's kind and gracious and he's going to speak the truth so we're not left in a bad condition. So that we can know we're in a bad condition if we're in one. So that we can then see our need for redemption and rescue. So this morning what we're going to do is hear from Jesus. We're going to give him the microphone so to speak. Because he is a speaking God. Jesus is going to speak in Luke chapter 11. So I'll invite you to open a Bible if you have a Bible. If not, you can listen on or you can get online and find a Bible pretty quickly. And you can join me in Luke chapter 11 where Jesus speaks with clarity. And he confronts a certain kind of Christianity. Jesus confronts a certain kind of Christianity. I've acknowledged before, I'll mention again... Technically, Christianity isn't called Christianity until the book of Acts, Acts 10, Acts 11, somewhere in there. But given that the Old Testament word Messiah is the same word as Christ, these people before the cross, before the book of Acts, would have all said they're Messiah followers. That they're Messiah expectors. Their allegiance is to Messiah, which is just... The New Testament way of saying they're Christ followers, Christ anticipators. And so I think it's helpful for us to remember that. It's more uncomfortable that way, but it's helpful for us to remember that we say we're Christians. We're saying we're, we're Messiah followers. Our commitment is to him first and foremost. And, and they would have said they're Messiah followers too, Christ followers. And so what happens in our passage, we're going to look at verses 29 to 54, and that's not altogether true because we already began looking at this a few weeks ago, and we're going to continue this morning with new stuff. But in verses 29 to 54, we see the Christianity that Christ confronts 
And we're going to follow 11 characteristics. So if you are the kind of person that finds it helpful to take notes like I do, we're going to look at 11 characteristics. But just before you write too much, sorry. This is what happens when you had a guest speaker two weeks ago, and I was on a high school ski trip last week, and um, now we're picking it up again. We already looked at the first five. We're going to look at the remaining six today. So I'll quickly review one to five, and we'll start with number six. That's not too, too confusing, is it? You don't need to understand new math to know how to do that. Um, we'll review the first five super fast, and then new stuff, um, whether you're just joining us or not, for, uh, number six through 11 this morning is what we'll do. Number one, the Christianity that Christ confronts. This is review. The Christianity that Christ confronts demands proof in the face of proof. It demands proof when he's living proof right in front of of them. That's verses 29 to 30. I won't say more than that this morning because I really want to focus on what we're going to cover. Number two, the Christianity that Christ confronts is the sort that refuses to learn from history. It refuses to learn from history, specifically God's history of redemption. That's in verses 31 and 32. Number three, the Christianity that Christ confronts is the sort that rejects the clear light of revelation. Rejects the clear light of revelation, verses 33 to 36. Number four, by way of review, the Christianity that Christ confronts is the sort that prioritizes image, the way we look on the outside, over substance. Image over substance. Verses 37 to 41. And finally, by way of review, the Christianity that Christ confronts is the sort that majors on the minors, and minors on the majors. And that's verse 42. Number six. New stuff. What sort of Christianity does Christ take aim at? Number six. The kind that exalts self. The kind that exalts self. Put your seatbelts on if you would. We're going to experience some turbulence. Um, tray tables up, seats forward. Okay, it's kind of what we need to do now. Everybody duck on three. Not really, but look at verse 43. Jesus says, Woe to you Pharisees! Woe to you! He, he locks and loads. It doesn't get more forceful than that. Woe to you Pharisees! Pharisees, by the way, are the people who say they believe the Bible is true. By the way, they're the conservatives. Woe to you Pharisees, woe to you who are a lot like people that might gather at Omaha Bible Church even. doesn't mean they're right. I mean, they're right in wanting to be Bible believers, but, but they've, they've lost their, their, their way. And he says, woe to you. In other words, you're under condemnation. I don't mean this in a slang sense, in a profanity sense, but he is saying in a technical theological sense, damn you. You're under the condemnation of God. Woe to you. And why would he say that? Why would this non-Build-A-Bear Jesus say it this way? Well, here's why. For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. what What do you think he means? Would it really call for that lambasting forceful, let them have it kind of condemnation if they're just looking for a place where they can, you know, see well? No, right? But that's not it. 
They're not just looking for the best seat so they can see well. They're looking for the best seat where they can be seen. Right? In, in the synagogue, a lot, a lot like a church in the sense that if you, in the Old Testament world, uh, in the pre-cross world, you, if you, you want to go to the temple, but if you can't make it to the temple because of distance or whatever it might be, you gather together in synagogues. You gather together in ordinary buildings where you hear the word of God read and you hear the word of God explained and, and, and you sing songs together and a lot like a church service, we would think. And, and he says, woe to you who look for the best seats, not so you can see so that you can be seen, right? We get the idea. Look at me. I am a religious leader. I'm in charge. I'm it. Look at me up here. I'm extraordinary. And he's saying, woe to you. Christianity is not about you. Messiah following is not about you. It's about Messiah. It's about Christ being exalted and seen, high and lifted up. Not you. This is perversion. This is utter perversion. And then he says, and greetings in the marketplaces. Now we know what he, he, he's not saying, well, you guys are so bad that I'm going to really let you have it because you want people to say hi to you. You want people to say greetings, good morning. He's not saying that, right? We, we know he's not saying that. What they want is some sort of grandiose kind of formal greeting that makes them look extraordinary, makes them look different from everybody else, right? Well, hello, high, holy, reverend brother, so-and-so. So everybody can hear that that person is especially godly, right? Self-exalting, self promoting and Jesus says to religious leaders who are like that damn you you're under the condemnation of God you're a glory monger you're a glory grubber and there's only one who deserves honor and glory and it's me right this is intense this is harsh but you can see it as harsh and mean as an end or you can say you know jesus speaks the truth and so what he does as the light is he exposes the darkness so again we can see reality for what it really is and so we, we can either be mad at jesus for doing this as some would no doubt have been mad at him or we can mature beyond the being mad and we can say isn't it good that jesus did this I just remind you of the super basic reality. Christianity is about Christ. And when we lose sight of the fact that Christianity is about Christ, we lose sight of the whole point. This does remind me, by the way, of, of the significance of expository preaching. You know, let's just preach the Bible. Um, let's not just come up with whatever we want to do and we'll find Bible verses to tack on. Uh, because can you imagine? I, I would never preach this ever in my life. If I would have just gotten up from a big, huge gold chair 
right? Up on the stage. Oh, and by the way, uh, keeping you from me in my gold exalted high and lifted up chair is a fence right here. Um, and the fence is here so that you can know that you can't go to God the way I can go to God. And I'm in the big chair and I've got the big gold medallion and I've got the big fancy robe and I've got the big pointy hat. I might have other guys with other cool stuff too, but mine's even better than them. And really theirs is designed to show how great mine is. And then I could get up from my thing and maybe you all could somehow do something special when I got up to do my thing. And I started doing preaching through Luke chapter 11. You'd be like, somebody needs to send the guy the memo, you know? The king doesn't have any clothes on. He doesn't even know it. I would never do that if I were the big, high, lifted up, exalted, gold chair, pointy hat guy. Because it would be self-condemning. I'm for expository preaching. Now. I need to follow my own sword. You see what I just did? I just exalted myself. Because <laughs> I'm right. And nobody else is. Look at me. I'm an expositor. Right? And you were, you were with me. You got sucked into it. You're like, yeah, that's right. We're right. And they're bad. And they're wrong. And, and look at us. We're expo- My pastor's an, a Bible expositor. High and exalted. And high and lifted up. I just wanted to turn the gun on myself for a moment and realize and help you realize, hopefully help myself to realize that Christianity isn't about the expositor either. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, His Word should be proclaimed. And yes, we're called as pastors to preach His Word. But it should be done so that we all know and are reminded that He is exalted. Because when he came, he came preaching condemnation against those religious leaders who saw themselves as somehow extraordinary. Got to remember that. Whether it comes in one form or the other kind of form. Number seven, Christianity that Christ confronts is the sort that deceives in corruption. It's the sort that deceives in corruption. And if that doesn't make sense, I think it will. And I think it'll be helpful to put it that way as you see verse 44. Woe to you. Condemnation be upon you. Judgment be upon you. And here's why. For you are like unmarked graves. Oh, what an insult. You're like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing it. Without knowing it. There's the idea of deception. You guys who claim to be the Bible-believing conservatives, committed, you're the inerrantists, all the right views, I would say. You guys claim to give life. You claim to have the key. You claim to be the, the ones to go to and through. And he says, you're like unmarked graves. Now think for a moment like a Jewish person, whether you are or you aren't. Old Testament world, avoid dead things. Avoid dead bodies because you don't want to be ceremonially unclean. And so if you know there's death, you'll avoid dead bodies at all costs. 
And so it would be common and ordinary to mark graves so that if I see that there's death, I can go around. And here are these religious leaders and Jesus insults them with the one-two punch, doesn't he? You're like unmarked graves. Deception. Deception. These are the guys that say they offer life. And in reality, they offer contamination. They offer purity. Come to us for cleansing. We know the way. Yeah, come to us. I'm, I'm the cleansing guy. In reality, I'm the defiling guy. And Jesus really takes them to task for that. They're actually deceivers. He's calling them spiritual deceivers is what he's doing. They look holy on the outside. They appear to offer life, but they don't offer it. They actually offer corruption. Think in terms of Christianity again, because they would have claimed to be Messiah awaiters. They, they, they claim to be Christian. But if you look under the label, it's anti-Christian. It's anti-Christ. And again, if this is at all applicable in the 21st century, and I think it is, if it were true then, in principle it would be true now, there are those who are associated with the right religion, bearing the right title, the right name, Christian who are in effect anti-Christian. So we would want to learn from Jesus. We would want to learn that there are those who say they're Christian who are Christian. We would. How about this? Let's bring it closer to home. This is all the part. The part we all hate. We could say we're a Christian. We could say we're a Christian church, and, and just because we say we are doesn't mean we would be. We might actually be in the crosshairs of Jesus if we claim to offer purity, cleansing for people, and in effect we actually don't because we don't actually offer them the work of Messiah. It's motivating. I really appreciated um, a a sincere person not too long ago saying to me uh, about a dialogue they had with a friend. And this is a person who was newly uh, coming to Omaha Bible Church and, and had, some, had some friends who were legitimately concerned. And they said, you know, what, what do you know about that church? I like friends who ask that kind of question. And this person with a, with a sweet, I would say innocent spirit said to me, well, what I told them was, I know it's a good church because if you look at the sign on the outside, it says Omaha Bible Church. So, of course, it's a good church because it's a Bible church. And I just thought, that's awesome. That's sweet. And, of course, I'm the senior pastor of Omaha Bible Church, so, of course, I like it. But I did have to say to the individual, I said, you know, that's sweet. I'm thankful, and and I, I wish it could be that simple. But you have to know that we can claim to be teaching the Bible and not be. We can claim to be Christian and not be. The reality is the reality. Are we actually promoting the glory of Christ? Is it actually salvation by, by Christ alone? Is it grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone? We had a good dis- discussion about it. We need to remember that these kinds of guys we're reading about were associated with the right religion. And just because you have the association doesn't mean you're actually a part of it. And that unsettles us because that's, that's us. But it's good to know, coming from Jesus, because he's mad at us, because he's mean to us? No, but because he actually cares. Let's move on to the eighth one, 
the Christianity that Christ confronts is the sort that refuses to see its own sin. We can skip this one because this would never apply to us. No, the Christianity that Christ confronts refuses to see its own sin. How about verse 45? One of the lawyers, that would be an expert in the Old Testament law, okay? Not lawyer in the sense that we would use it. You might want to use this verse against certain lawyers, um, but you shouldn't do that. Experts in the Old Testament law. One of the lawyers answered him. Man, I like this guy, by the way. I think you should too in certain ways. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. This guy should go to the head of the class. This guy knows how to connect dots. This guy knows that two and two is four. This guy understands how to principalize. But let's dramatize it a little bit. Um, Jesus, um, I, I, I don't know if you realize it or not. I mean, surely you don't realize it. But, see, what you're saying about those guys over there, you know, those guys, what you're saying about those guys over there, um, that's insulting us too. Because we're essentially two peas in the same pod. And Jesus can, in effect, say, front of the class, you got it. This guy is astute. I would dare say, at fear of insulting you, which I'm about ready to do, he might be more astute than a lot of us. Because what do we do? We just, man, we're like, Jesus, let them have it. Those guys are bad. They're punks. I mean, they're corrupt and full of dead men's bones. And let's just give them more Bible terms. They're bad. I'm so glad I'm not like them. This guy's way more perceptive than we are when we do that. He says, Jesus, if you're saying that about them, um, <laughs> that would be true of us, and surely you don't mean to do that. See? I like this guy, even though I hate this guy. <laughs> Too frequently we hear Jesus criticizing and we think it only applies to someone else. Just for clarity's sake, this is not Jesus criticizing other religions. He does that. John chapter 4 would be an example with a Samaritan woman. This is Jesus criticizing the right religion and wrongly used. Um, this is not Jesus criticizing the left, the liberals. No, Jesus does that too, the Sadducees. Here it's the right. The people who have the right view of the Bible. But they're missing the point. They're missing the message. A couple of weeks ago, we had our infamous man camp. And we heard lots of messages about bacon. Um, actually, we didn't. But I like to say that. I was listening to a radio show the other day. And they, were put, they put some kind of like, these guys have beards. Because everybody's enamored with beards these days. And they, they had like beard wax or something. And it was bacon flavored. So they could just smell bacon all day. I'm like, well, these guys are... Anyway, it's neither here nor there. Um, I didn't buy any. But what was I talking about? Um, yeah. <laughs> At man camp, the theme this time around was don't be that guy. Don't be, you know, that guy. It was a great theme. I like the theme. We made a lot of it. Don't be that guy. 
And what did we do? We, we looked at some of the infamous bad guys of the Bible. And you know, and let's see, this guy totally blew it in this way. Don't be that guy. This guy totally blew it in that way. Don't be that guy. But what had to be said, what had to be said if it was going to be a Christian man camp that Christ wouldn't take aim at is that you are that guy because you're a sinner not in need of an example in need of a savior because you're a sinner had to be said somebody made a name tag everybody had name tags at man camp somebody made one that said not pat but it said that guy and i took that and ran with it and said everybody here today needs a name tag that says that guy See, when people don't think that they're that guy or that gal, for that matter, they're these kinds of people. And Jesus takes aim. Takes aim and basically says, you don't, you don't get it. Because by the way, you don't need Christ. You don't need atonement. You just need an example. And Christianity is not about an example. The Bible is not ultimately about an example. It's about a Savior. We've got to trust in the Savior. It's true. Don't be that guy. The problem is, given the fact that we're all sin, sinners by nature, is we are. So we need atonement. We need atonement. The kind of Christianity that Christ confronts, we've just seen, is the kind that refuses to see its own sin. Just a couple of statements about that. You can just listen. Christianity is not a religion that allows us to see our superior superiority to others. It is not a religion that allows us to see ourselves as better. It is not a religion that requires that one see their... Uh, it is a religion that requires that one see their own enslavement to sin and therefore need for redemption. As the old saying goes... We've met the enemy, and the enemy is us. Think about it. If I'm enslaved, if I'm enslaved to sin, I need to be rescued. I'm not a good follower because I can't go anywhere. You can tell me to not be that guy all day long, and I am that guy. You can tell me to be this guy instead and all day long, and I can't be that guy. That's why the Bible uses that great, great image of redemption. Christ comes and pays the price and frees us so we're not enslaved anymore. Oh, and by the way, then we can be encouraged to be that guy and not that guy. Helpful or not, Jesus is confronting the kind of Christianity that doesn't see its own guilt. So let's not be those kinds of Christians because it's not really Christianity anyway. Let's move on to the next one. Number nine, the Christianity that Christ confronts is the sort that enslaves with religious burdens. It's the sort that enslaves with religious burdens. I might add burdens too, too heavy to carry. How about verse 46? And he said, woe to you lawyers also. You load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of, one of your fingers. 
Let's start with the last part. You, you yourself don't touch it with one of your fingers. This is classic with legalism where, where the religious leaders say, this is the principle, follow this. This is the principle, follow this. This is the principle, follow this. This is my list. This is what I've come up with in my, in my life. Do this, do this, do this. And so many times, they don't do it. And Jesus is saying, that's a problem here. But let's focus on the first part of it for now. Or now. You load people with burdens hard to bear. That's legalism. See, these experts in the law were helping people by, by coming up with their own things to say. Again, maybe they were doing this in the name of mining the Bible for timeless truths and principles. They're, they're, they're coming up with all this stuff that God hadn't actually explicitly said and, and maybe they're principalizing from the Bible in some sort of obscure way. And, and they're saying, you've got to do this. 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 Then God will accept you. Then God will like you. Then things will go well with you. And it's legalism. And if you want to know what makes Jesus mad, among other things, it's when religious conservatives, because that's who these guys are, do this. It's not true that more is always better. It's called legalism. It's called legalism. Now, now, don't check out and, and really think this one through with me, if you would, for a moment, as far as what legalism is and what legalism isn't. And, and we obviously want to know because we don't want to be under the, under the woe of Jesus. We tend to think that legalism is where the law of God is emphasized. And I'm going to suggest to you that in its most basic form, that's not legalism. Legalism, in its most basic form, is when the laws of men and women are emphasized. Our authority comes into play. If if these guys would have done a great job of just teaching the law of God as God said, I don't think Jesus would have blasted them. If they would have, because let's think of it in these terms. If, if If Jesus would have said to them what they said to him, follow me or not. If Jesus would have asked them the question, what's the great and foremost commandment? Which is what they asked Jesus. If Jesus would have asked them the question, do you think they could have gotten the answer right? Let me give you a hint. I think they could. They're experts in the Bible. They they could have said, it is what Deuteronomy says it is. It is what Leviticus says it is. It is to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's to love neighbor as self. If you would have asked them that in a different setting, what is the foremost commandment? I know they would have gotten it right. And Jesus wouldn't have said, you legalists. He would have said, like they said to him, you've answered correctly. I mean, if you know anything about the Old Testament, that's the right answer. And it's never branded as legalism. It's the law of God. And the law of God is good and righteous and holy. Now, if you're checking out, let me try to help bring you back. If you're not, awesome. Pray that others could be brought back. Trying to flesh out for you, legalism is when we add our laws and principles or misuse God's law, we could say. Legalism is not where God's law is emphasized. Here's what I want to suggest to you. Legalism is when you take God's law, love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, which 
people who are sinners by nature can't do. And we lower it. And by adding our supplemented laws, principles, morals, suggest to people that they can earn the favor of God. That's legalism. Taking the law of God, which is love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, we all fail at it. Lowering it to be accomplishable by people with sin natures. And then adding principles so that we can actually please God. And that's what these guys are doing. I'm saying it that way and I'm belaboring the point because Jesus wasn't against the law of God. It's inherently right. Everyone should love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's, it's, it's the right thing. They're lessening the law, which by the way, here we go, here's the good part, removes your need for Christ. Because if we can lower the true requirement and just add some supplemental requirements, you can do it. Now, you might need my secret way, but you can do it. You might have to come through me, but you can do it. The right thing would have been to say, God's law says what the Bible says, love Him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and everything will be good for you. Do this and live, as Jesus will say later. And that would be crushing. Because the smart guy in the class would say, but we can't. That's right. And we, as followers of Messiah, point to Him because He is the suffering servant. Because He will bear our iniquities. Because we will find justification, law-keeping, Allah, Isaiah 53, in and through Him. You see, it wasn't that they emphasized the law too much and they were legalists. They lowered and changed the law and added their own and their legalists. How about this? I want to tell you the law, not as a legalist, but as a gospel preacher. I want to tell you what God requires so you can say, can't do it. I'm incapable. There's no hope. And I'm going to say, perfect. Let me introduce you to Jesus Christ. By the way, these guys gave burdens, more principles, more timeless Bible truths. Burden, burden, burden. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Not because he came and got rid of the law, but because he came to fulfill the law. It's awesome. It's awesome. The burden is gone. The burden is gone. It's gone by Christ. Christ is after these kind of quote-unquote Christians because they refuse to see their own sin. Yes, but they also enslave people with religious burdens too great to carry. Now, I, I just can't leave that one quite yet. Is legalism where we emphasize the law of God? I'm suggesting to you, if you say yes, you, you haven't read Jesus right. He emphasized the law of God. And he said, I came to fulfill it, not to abolish it. Legalism is where we add our own and we lower God's standard. Thinking we're being nice, getting more people in. We're cutting them off from the solution. I want people to know that this is what God's law says 
And so they can say, I can't do that. I'm miserable. So they can have rest in Christ. It's huge, 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 huge. Let's move on to number 10. I'd like to say it again, but I don't think just repeating it again and again will do any good. So let's move on to number 10. The Christianity that Christ confronts is the sort that perpetuates, perpetuates, four syllables. So boys and girls, if mom and dad have you taking notes, four syllables, perpetuates. Okay, ice cream today, pastor says. (laughs) Maybe, never mind. Perpetuates That kind of Christianity that Christ confronts perpetuates hostility. It promotes and ongoingly promotes hostility toward God in the name of God. It's a long one, I know. Sorry about that. It perpetuates hostility. It keeps promoting hostility toward God in the name of God. Verse 47 says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Jesus is using metaphor. He's using, he, he's using a, a picture here. They don't, this isn't a literal kind of thing because your fathers, your ancestors killed the prophets. And you guys build their graves. Well, these guys are dead and gone a long time ago. But he's making the point that you are, are, are in with them. You're in cohorts with them. You're partners with them in crime. You yourselves, your, your ancestors, they killed God's prophets. Those who spoke the truth to you, the law and the gospel. You, your ancestors, killed them. I mean, this is a total insult, by the way, right? And you guys, today, you build their graves. You claim to represent God and say, we speak for God. We are the high holy men. He says, you are the very ones. You men who hold Bibles, who are chips off the old block gulp I mean this is the kind of stuff that when they would have had Sunday school which they wouldn't have had they would have had Saturday school Shabbat school um, if they would have had flannel graphs in Shabbat school like we have we, I don't even know if we do I think we still have them but in Shabbat school flannel graphs this, this, be, this would be the kind of stuff they, they didn't have images for <laughs> they would skip these chapters uh, they, would sk- they, they would skip the stuff that talked about their, their dark past. They wouldn't have Second Chronicles chapter 24 about killing Zechariah. Where Zechariah said, because you've forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. And then it says, they conspired against him. The Jewish people, the people of God conspired against him. And by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. In the house of the Lord, they kill the prophet of the Lord. Well, we don't talk about things like that. And Jesus is saying, you're as bad as those ancestors that you don't even like to talk about. Not only are you ugly, your dad is too. Now, that's, not, that's, that, that's too trivial. But I wanted you to understand the insult. You're guilty. You're as guilty as they are. Oh, let me correct that. He's actually going to say, they're worse. They're worse. This is such a happy sermon, isn't it? It's like, it's inspirational. It is inspirational, actually, to hear from Jesus, to have him sorted out, to trust in the real Jesus, the one who has the microphone and not one we've made up. Back to 48, just so we can pick it up again. So you are witnesses. 
And you consent to the deeds of your fathers, your ancestors, for they killed them, the prophets like Zechariah who spoke the truth, and you build their tombs. You're, you're equally shameful. No, you're worse because you're witnessing me. Let's keep going. Verse 49. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. Verse 50 says, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world. I might put my finger right there for a second to come back to that. That's pretty intense. May be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel and the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. How about that back in verse 50? The blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world. What's he saying there? What he's saying is all of these prophets have ultimately been pointing in one direction and they've been pointing in the direction of me, the ultimate prophet, if you will, the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate deliverer, always in anticipation. And you know what? You guys are doing just what they did, but I want you to know something that given the fact that it's progressive, given the fact that it's clear and clear and clear as time goes on and you've got all of this history of redemption, you have all of this historical data from the prophets, God speaking, God speaking, God speaking, and now I come and you redeem reject me you're guiltier than any of them you quote unquote bible believing conservative inerrantist fundamentalist christians if you don't see me for who i am if you don't see me for who i am then the blood of all the prophets since there have been prophets says you're guilty. I would never preach this sermon in a million years, I don't think, just because I wanted to preach it. But I'm so glad that we're looking at this. And I'm so glad that we can hear from Jesus so that we can realize that He sets the record straight. He's attacking those people who are promoting and perpetuating hostility toward God in the name of God, and we're not above that. And finally, number 11. The kind of Christianity that Christ confronts is the sort that withholds the truth. It's the sort that withholds the truth. Woe to you lawyers, experts in the law, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. What do you suppose they claim to have? The key of knowledge. Come to us and we will tell you the truth about God. We will tell you the truth about God as if it were a key and we will give you the key and you can unlock the door of the truth and you can see beyond paganism and you can see beyond world religions and you can see beyond the Gentiles and you can see the true and living God come to us. We have the key. And in so many ways they did. They had the revelation of God. Not pseudo-revelation, they had the revelation of God. And now they have the revelation of God standing right in front of them. And they do this. They themselves don't enter. And they don't let anybody else enter. 
It's awful. All the while saying, we offer the truth. We have the key. We're Messiah followers. We're Christian leaders. It's just a travesty. It's awful. We should be against these guys. It's a crisis. But we, just, we should just remember, we should do that absolutely. But we should just realize once again, we're not above it. I think of 1 Timothy where the church is described as the pillar and the support of the truth. It doesn't use the key image, but the truth image is there. We're supposed to defend the truth. We're supposed to promote the truth. Any true Christian church should be a center for truth. You can come and there won't be lies. There will be the truth about Christ. And, 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 and we'll tell you it clearly so that you can know what it means to be forgiven. So that you can know what it means to be reconciled. So you can know that it's only by His grace and only through faith in His completed work. And that you don't, you, you don't come because we're important or we're valuable. It's ultimately in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. The church should be the pillar and support of the truth because that's what the church is called. But we could... We could easily say that's what we are because we say we're a church. We speak the truth and we can not enter ourselves. We can keep either other people from it too. And in 1 Timothy, where he's talking about the truth, he's talking about the truth about the gospel, the truth about the work of Messiah on behalf of sinners. And so Omaha Bible Church, as we all play a role in this, different kinds of roles, Let's know that we're not above being the kinds of people that Jesus describes. We're just not. We have a great privilege of pointing to Christ and not to ourselves, and that's what we want to do. Let me end with this. Let me end by asking the obvious. Was Jesus against these guys? This means yes. And he's, he's so against these guys. Woe to you, condemned. Spiritual malpractice. Guilty. Woe to you. Here's the next question that maybe isn't so much on our radar. Did Jesus come here for people like this? <laughs> he did. He did. And so while it's, he comes as judge, right? He is the judge. He condemns it. But we have to remember that, that Jesus comes as Savior. And just as this is sin worthy of judgment, He comes as Savior to all who will trust in Him. doesn't mean this is free to go and licensed to, to go on and on. And it's right. It's wrong. But we have to remember He did come to save such people and rescue them. I think about the Apostle Paul who was one of these guys. Totally committed. And then when he writes, so awesome, knowing that that's where he comes from, it's so awesome to then read Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation, no woe for those who are in Christ Jesus. United to Christ, united to Messiah, by faith, by trust, by dependence. So I'm asking for a couple of things. Yes, leaving today, thinking in terms of, yeah, that's bad. I don't want to do that. That's what Christ is against. Good job. You get a B. 
You get a B plus if you, if you realize that, you know what, in so many ways, we are, we are those people. And, and maybe you can have an A if you realize that He came to save those kinds of people. He came to save those kinds of people. Trusting in Christ means you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, no condemnation, no woes. It's all based upon Him. It's all based upon Him. So you really don't get the A. Anyway, (laughs) let's pray. Father, thank you for a good time in your word, even in such a harsh passage. Uh, Because in the end, it is all designed to help us to see the the glory of Christ and the truthfulness of Christ and the graciousness of Christ. that, That he wouldn't come just trying to make everyone like him. That he would come speaking the truth. And it certainly didn't lead to people liking him. And he was crucified for speaking the truth. But thank you that he voluntarily went so that he would make atonement. That he would come as a great savior, as a great redeemer. And so help us to see him as worthy of our trust, worthy of our dependence. And as we find ourselves, by your grace, trusting in him, help us to also see things the way he saw them. Our sin for what it is. And religious hucksterism for what it is. And to the degree that we're guilty of that, may we find ourselves repenting by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.